0: Would you open your Bibles, please, to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. This will be our last message out of John 7. It's been a long chapter, but it's been a rich chapter. Last week, we learned that Jesus causes division. He causes division between elements of the crowds that were gathered together in Jerusalem for the the Feast of Booths. He causes division between members of families. We saw that in Matthew. He causes division between all those who give their supreme allegiance to him and to those who will give their supreme allegiance to someone or something else. Whether it's family or flag or fortune. And at the last day, he will finally divide his sheep from all those who have turned away from them, from those who have despised him, and for those who have not received him as Lord. On that great and terrible day of Yahweh, the day of his return to earth. Now this afternoon, from the passage we were looking at last week, we're going to be learning something else from this passage. And that is God is working even when we don't see it. So would you follow along in your copy of God's word as I begin reading in verse 40 of chapter 7 down to verse 53. Some of the crowd therefore when they heard these words were saying this truly is the prophet. Others were saying this is the Christ. Still others were saying no. For is the Christ going to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David? And from Bethlehem, the village where David was? And we say, yes, the scripture does say that. So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. And that's where we stopped last week. Some of them were wanting to seize him. But no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees and they said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, Never has a man spoken like this. The Pharisees then answered them, Have you also been led astray? Have any of the rulers or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd which does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus. He who came to him before, being one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing? They answered him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. And everyone went to his own home. Like I said, we ended last week with verse 43, that a division had occurred in the crowd because of him, because of the Lord Jesus. And then in verses 44 and 46, once again, they're trying to seize him. They're trying to arrest him. And it's that part of the crowd that we saw back in verse 12 of chapter 7. The ones who are saying, he is one who leads the crowd astray. These are the ones who, along with the priests, along with the Pharisees, are outraged at what the Lord Jesus Christ has been saying. The Lord Jesus Christ keeps saying and keeps inferring that Yahweh is his own father. He keeps saying he has been sent by Yahweh, the God they say they worship. He keeps saying that he himself can give eternal life to whoever he wishes to give eternal life. And then finally he dared to interrupt their solemn ceremony on the last great day of the Feast of Booths by standing up and crying out, look at verses 37 and 38. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living waters. Hmm. They had enough of this. And they decided that they would arrest him. <coughs> Citizens raised, But no one laid hands on him. And we know why no one laid hands on him. Even though they're worked up to fury. We know down in verse 30. They've tried to seize him before. So they were seeking to seize him. <clears throat> yet no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. God the Father and God the Son before the foundation of the world had determined that they were going to save their sinners Through the Lord Jesus willing sacrifice of himself for his people on Passover. They have determined he will be sacrificed as the Passover lamb on Passover. No one, no crowd, no government is going to frustrate what they have determined from before the foundation of the world they are going to execute. So no one laid a hand on it. I can't help but when I read passages like this, narratives questions come to mind and sometimes I laugh and you would say yeah you're the same guy that sings out loud in the car. But the the kind of question that comes to my mind is how frustrated must these people be? They've got a crowd, and they're ready to seize Jesus, and they can't touch him. It it just doesn't happen. It just keeps not happening. I wonder if they just couldn't figure out, why can't we just grab him? But they can't, because his time had not yet come. It's not yet there's still six months of work for the Lord Jesus to do, for the Father to do, before it's their time for him to offer himself up as a sacrifice. And he'll keep proving over the next six months that they can't touch him. It's going to happen over and over and over again. This is the second attempt by the crowd to lay their hands on Jesus and both of these attempts have failed. But it's not just the crowd that can't grab him. Look down in verse 45. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees and they said to them, Why did you not bring him? Now look up at verse 32 and we'll understand who these officers are. Verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering these things, that is, that he might be the Christ. And the chief priest and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Now who are these officers? These officers are the temple police. They're also called in 1 Corinthians chapter twenty or 1 Corinthians, 1 Chronicles chapter 26, they're called gatekeepers. These are Levites. These are Levites who have been chosen by God to serve around his tabernacle and around his temple. These are armed police, armed with clubs, armed with swords. Their function is to make sure that none of the furniture, none of the trappings of the tabernacle or the temple are stolen. They're also there to keep order among the crowds when they come to worship at the temple. And especially to make sure that no one but a priest goes into the holy place. And that no one but the chief priest goes into the holy of holies one time a year on the day of atonement. They are the temple police. But they're Levites. Keep that in mind. They're not just any Jew. They're not just any Israelite. These are part of the tribe of Levi out of which the priests have been selected. They've received a Bible education beyond what the average Jewish man or woman would have received. They know the word of God. They know the law of God. I have to ask myself a question. If there's a the temple police, and it's part of their job to make sure the order is maintained at the temple, the quorum is maintained, where were they when Jesus was cleansing the temple just a few months before? Sovereignty of God coming in right again. Now these, in verse 45, we're told that the officers came without Jesus because what they have seen is how the crowd cannot seize Jesus. And that every attempt to arrest him is frustrated somehow but it's more than that when they're asked why didn't you bring him and you can tell that they're more that the Pharisees and the chief priests are more than a little irritated that the officers haven't brought him we gave you orders why didn't you bring him I mean you're the police you have authority you can do this What's the matter with you men? Verse 46, they get their answer. I'll tell you what's the matter with us. Never has any man spoken like this. Hmm. Remember they're Levites. Remember they've been taught the word of God. More than the average Israelite would have been taught the word of God. They've heard Jesus apply the scriptures much more effectively, much more clearly, and more accurately than their own religious leaders. Than the priests and the Pharisees who've tried to trap him. He keeps insisting that Yahweh sent him. He he keeps insisting that he knows Yahweh intimately. Like a son knows his father. He claims that he himself will satisfy the spiritual thirst of anyone who will believe in him. And as they listen, his words hit home with authority. And they're being convinced. They know the predictions, they know the prophecies, and they're wondering about this man. And after hearing Jesus for themselves, remember they're in Jerusalem. Jesus most of Jesus ministry to this point has been up in Galilee, but their job is in Jerusalem. Now he's come to Jerusalem. Now he started teaching in Jerusalem. They've been hearing, they've been listening. He's been teaching in the temple. And they begin to doubt whether they should arrest him. Maybe he is the Messiah. Sounds like he is the Messiah. Still have a problem with Why wasn't he born in Bethlehem? I've got news for you, fellas. He was born in Bethlehem. He's just not telling you that for his own reason. He has to be crucified. If he tells you that he was born in Bethlehem, you may not crucify him. Because now he's fulfilling everything that the Messiah should fulfill. So they come back and they say, in verse 46, "...never has a man spoken like this man." We're comparing what he says to what we know from the scriptures. We have watched him make monkeys out of you when you've tried to trap him. And we know about the miracles he's been performing. That word's been coming back into Jerusalem for months now. That's why we haven't arrested him. Look at verse 47. The Pharisees then answered them, Have you also been led astray? You know better. You've been taught. Surely you understand the word of God better than any of these other folks. I mean, we can understand why this common crowd, these, these pilgrims that are here in town, we can understand how they could be duped because they don't know the word. We understand that they're just ignorant compared to us. Now they would know many things out of scripture, but compared to us. They're ignorant. So we know how they could be led astray. But you, how can you be led astray? Have any of the rulers or Pharisees believed in him? I mean, we're the ones who would know. We will recognize the Messiah for sure. Have any of us been led astray? And I can't help but imagine, or have any of us believed in him? I can't help but imagine that when they're chewing out the police there, The gatekeepers, the officers, the officers are probably thinking to themselves, yeah, we're better educated than the common crowd. And that's why we didn't arrest him. But that's just my conjecture. But notice what they say there in verse 48. Have any of the rulers of Pharisees believed in him? Now that's where this text turns on its hinge. This is the hinge for this text right here. Nicodemus, he who came to him before, being one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing? They answered him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Everyone went to his own home. Hmm. Nicodemus who had come to Jesus before by night is saying to them be careful be careful what you're planning to do now he's saying this to them very tactfully but he's warning them you are so anxious and you are so zealous to see that every word of the law is fulfilled Be careful that you're not breaking the law by what you're doing. Or at least the proper legal procedures of the law in what you're doing. I wonder if Nicodemus was there when Jesus spoke in verse 19. Look at verse 19 in chapter 7. Did not Moses give you the law? And yet none of you does the law. I wonder if that's what provoked Nicodemus to warn them at this point. Be very careful that in your zeal to keep every little regulation of the law. That you don't break some major regulation of the law. Anyway. In verse 52, notice what they do. They turn on him. They snarl at him. Are you also from Galilee? They are so angry that all of their attempts to silence the Lord Jesus Christ have fallen apart. They turn on Nicodemus himself. You surely notice this if you've ever watched political debates. Especially presidential debates which have become a farce in in the last 40 years. Sometimes a politician in a debate realizes that his position... Is much weaker than his opponent's position. So he stops trying to defend his position. And he turns and makes a personal attack on his opponent. That's what they're doing here. Nicodemus has just exposed their blind determination to kill Jesus at all costs. And he's exposed it to them. And he's exposed it to the officers. They've all seen it. They're embarrassed. And so what they do is they turn on him. And attack him. Look at verse 52. They answered him, are you also from Galilee? That's that snarl. Search and see that no prophet comes out of Galilee. Search and see that no prophet comes out of Galilee. You see, that seals it for them. Jesus is out of Galilee. He's not from Bethlehem. At least they think. And so, that settles the question. Hmm. Search and see that no prophet comes out of Galilee. There's only a problem here. Hosea came out of Galilee. And they should have known that. And some of them probably did know that. And were embarrassed. You see, in their rage, in their fury, that their plan, this is a good time, we can grab him, we can have him arrested, we can bring him in for a mock trial, and we can execute him legally. And all this is falling apart. And the the officers have returned without him. And now Nicodemus, we're going to see who Nicodemus is in just a minute. Of all men, Nicodemus is warning us, be very careful what you're doing here. And in their anger, their anger speaks louder than their mind. And their anger overrules what they know. That's a warning for us. But that's free. That's that's not part of the sermon tonight, but that's just free. Now, I said so when you're involved in a debate, I know we're not supposed some people think we're not supposed to debate. Well, Jesus sure seems to do a lot of it here in the gospel. If you're involved in a religious debate with someone, especially someone who's denying the scriptures, make sure you maintain control of your emotions. And that you don't say something that you wish later you hadn't said. Because we just want to speak the truth. Correct? Yeah. Now I said earlier. That when the Pharisees and the chief priests asked. Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? I said that's the hinge that this text turns on. Because apparently Nicodemus. Who is one of them. He's a Pharisee. Did believe in Jesus. As the Messiah. They're saying here. Only the ignorant. Would believe in him. But Jesus recognized who Nicodemus is. Back in John chapter 3. He said are you the teacher of Israel. He's one of. If I can put it like this. He's one of the head or the leading. Teachers professors. In the theological academy. He is one of those that you would refer to to have your religious questions, your spiritual questions answered. He would be one of those who's training the rabbis. That's who Nicodemus is. He's not some little preacher boy from out in the outskirts of Judea. No, he is the, and the Lord Jesus says, he is the teacher of Israel. He is preeminent in his understanding of God's word. Well, only the ignorant would follow him. Nicodemus is sitting there going, Excuse me? Be careful. You see, he knows that Jesus has come from God. He said that in John chapter 3, verse 2. We know you have come from God to teach. And he has arranged a private meeting with the Lord Jesus Christ 18 months ago. Nicodemus believes that Jesus is the Messiah, or well, if he hasn't come to full conviction yet, he's just on the edge of it. But because of his fear of the Jews, look at back at uh, chapter seven, verse thirteen. No one was speaking openly of, about him for fear of the Jews. And when we get into chapter nine, we're going to know what that fear of the Jews is. That's the fear that the Pharisees would you out of the synagogue and you would be a spiritual and social outcast. Nicodemus has a lot to lose in his mind, humanly speaking. I mean, if you were the Nah, I'm not going to say that. If, if you, I was about to make some reference to the chair of theology in some seminary, but I'll leave that alone. But if you had the head chair of theology in the seminary, and everyone looked to you, and everyone knew that you had the answers, and everyone thought that you were the supreme source for the final word on the word of God, and you were kicked out because of heresy, You lose your position, you lose your standing in society, you lose your income, you're humiliated. He's got a lot to lose. So for fear of losing all that, he hasn't publicly confessed that Jesus is the Messiah. He will later. Nicodemus' story shows us that God is working even when we don't see him working. From the very first, Nicodemus has been drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's been drawn by his preaching to Christ with John the Baptist. Remember John's preaching, repent and believe the gospel for the kingdom is at hand. Jesus is preaching, repent and believe the gospel for the kingdom is at hand. He's been preaching with John. He's been preaching apart from John. Nicodemus was probably part of the crowd that went to hear John preach and also to hear Jesus preach. Nicodemus has been drawn to Jesus because of his zeal for pure worship. It's Jesus who drove all the vendors out of the court of the Gentiles just about two years before. Because he said, zeal for your house has eaten me up. And Nicodemus takes notice of that. Nicodemus Has been drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ as Messiah because of all the attesting signs that Jesus has performed. Remember that first Passover that he was in Jerusalem. He performed many signs and many people believed in him after he had cleansed the temple. Nicodemus has been drawn to Jesus because of the miracles he's performed. He has been so drawn to Jesus that he made a private appointment with the Lord Jesus Christ. But at night, so apparently none of his Pharisee compatriots know that he's met with Jesus privately. And none of them suspect what God is working in Nicodemus' heart and mind at this time. Otherwise, they would, have, would not have said, have any of the Pharisees believed in him? But after Jesus has been crucified by these priests and by these Pharisees, it was Nicodemus, along with Joseph of Arimathea, that prepared Jesus' body for burial. It was Nicodemus who brought 75 pounds of expensive spices that the Jews used to, if you will, sweeten up a decomposing body. It was Nicodemus who helped Joseph wrap Jesus in clean linen. It was Nicodemus who helped Joseph lay the Lord Jesus in the tomb, in Joseph's tomb, and roll the stone back. Nicodemus then publicly, openly displayed his great honor and respect for the Lord Jesus Christ, regardless of what other people might think about him. But Nicodemus isn't the only one that shows that God is working, even when we don't see it. Think about the triumphal entry. Go with me to John chapter seven. We're about done with John uh, John chapter seven. We're about done there. Go with me to John twelve. We'll get here eventually. This is the triumphal entry. Jesus' is teaching in the temple. Verse 37. But though he had done so many signs before them, they still were not believing in him. But look down at verse 42. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? According to this, just six months later, many of the rulers were believing that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Messiah. But because of the Pharisees, they're keeping it quiet. They're they're not going to openly confess him as Lord. God was working in these rulers' hearts. Even when no one else could see it. I'd be interested to know how many of these rulers came to true saving faith in our Lord Jesus Christ after the day of Pentecost. We'll find out when we get to heaven. And speaking of wonderful conversions after the day of Pentecost, go to Acts chapter 6 and just sit there for a second. Acts chapter 6. We're told in the book of Acts that on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 souls were saved. Souls, men and women. We're told in chapter 4 that after Peter and John had been used to heal the lame man at the beautiful gate, that 5,000 men were in the congregation. Now, that's just like Jesus feeding the 5,000. It's 5,000 men, male adult males, not counting the women. So there may have been 10,000 that are part of the church in Jerusalem at this time. And then in chapter 5, we're told that after Ananias and Sapphira were killed by God, remember, it's God that killed them. After Ananias and Sapphira were killed by God, because they lied publicly to the church, they lied to the Spirit, And God is always very careful when he does something new that you bring sin into it, the results are lethal. Ask Nadab and Abihu. They can tell you as well. Ask Korah and Dathan. They will tell you as well. When God is revealing his saving work and someone brings sin in to pollute it, the results are lethal. But after Ananias and Sapphira had been killed by God, we're told in John chapter 5 verse 14 that multitudes of men and women believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now get this. I love this. Acts chapter 6 verse 7. And the word of God kept on spreading and the number of the disciples continued to multiply greatly in Jerusalem. Get this. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. The priests. Many of these would have been Sadducees, the party of the high priest, the ones who denied major portions of the scriptures, the ones who were Jesus' worst enemies. The ones who had just killed the Lord Jesus Christ. You never expect them to come to faith and to become obedient to the faith. How did they become obedient to the faith? They're his enemies. Well, it tells us that the word of God kept on spreading. The Word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and a, a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The Word of God opens us up. It sticks right into us. It goes right to the core of our being when the Holy Spirit is working with it. We're told that faith in the Lord Jesus Christ comes by hearing, hearing the Word of Christ. So, what's happening here? The word of God is spreading. Christ is being preached in Jerusalem more and more and more. And these priests are hearing it. And the Holy Spirit takes the gospel and opens them up just like a sword. Stabs them right in the heart. And they find themselves privately if not publicly saying, What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and they were becoming obedient the priest now who saw that coming God is working even when we can't see it and then of course you know where I'm going to go next what about Saul Saul of Tarsus now that's a sudden conversion except it's not sudden for God he had been chosen before the foundation of the world he had been given to the Lord Jesus Christ before time began. He had witnessed Stephen's murder by the Sanhedrin. And remember, it's the Sanhedrin that murdered Stephen. When we, at some point, if we ever get to the book of Acts, we'll see that. And he was there witnessing Stephen's murder. And he heard Stephen pray, Lord, do not hold this sin against them you think that affected Saul a little? Do you think that might have had some impact on him? Do you think that might have been a pang of conviction? How can this man that we're killing pray that God not hold this against us? Acts chapter 8 verse 3 tells us that he became the chief persecutor of the church. Saul began ravaging the church, it says, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He was delivering them into prison. Sometimes, when a sinner is being convicted of sins, when a lost man or woman is being convicted of sins, they get worse. And the more they're convicted, the more they fight it. And the more they're convicted, the more they fight and go against it and do what they've been doing more and more and more. Because they're so burned up in their spirit by what God is doing in them, they can't stand it. And the only way they think that they can stanch it, the only way that they can drench it, is by going further and further and harder and harder to prove to themselves that what they're doing is okay. That's what Saul's doing. He's seen Stephen this is pure conjecture he may have heard Jesus preach because remember this is less than a year after the Lord Jesus Christ has been crucified but he's become the chief persecutor of the church and he's on his way to Damascus and he's going to bind these Christians in Damascus and he's going to drag them back to Jerusalem so they can be punished and he doesn't make it And Jesus meets him on the road to Damascus. And Jesus instantaneously converts him on the road to Damascus. He falls to the bright light, brighter than the noonday sun. Everyone around him is being blinded. He's being blinded by this light. The voice comes from heaven and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, Lord, who are you? And he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting and Saul's whole world disintegrates he becomes undone he's devoured what have I done what have I done and Jesus says now just pray this prayer after me no all the Lord Jesus says is Saul I am the one you are persecuting And Saul's only response is Lord 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 What would you have me do? That's a man that's owned. That's a man who has met his God. What would you have me to do? Who would have ever seen that coming? God is working when no one sees it. And I have one last one. This is contemporary. Well, roughly contemporary. Only 40 years old. A young lady by the name of Cheryl. A young mother. Mother of two little boys. Uh, in Carthage, New York. She's a Jehovah's Witness. She's married to one of the elders in the local kingdom hall. She has served as a pioneer. In the JWs, now I looked it up the other day, uh, just to try to make sure that I'm not teaching lies. Today, a regular pioneer among the Jehovah's Witnesses spends seventy hours a month knocking on doors and spreading their doctrine. Seventy hours a month. Do the math. Yeah, that's more than almost 20 hours a week. That's a regular pioneer. Then they have what they call special pioneers who, who devote their entire life to door knocking. And they live off of the largesse of the local kingdom halls. But she had been a pioneer. She was a JW, she was a convinced Jehovah's Witness, she was a committed Jehovah's Witness. Married to one of the elders in the kingdom hall. And then, as she read her Bible, her perverted copy of the New World Translation of the Scriptures, even that perverted translation, as she read it over the years, she came to the conclusion that Jesus isn't just the Archangel Michael. And what I read here, Jesus isn't just God's greatest creation and he's not just the Son of God and that horrifying prospect of reality that she's being convinced more and more from reading that he is Emmanuel. God with us. And she tells a friend of hers that she's really having internal difficulties, spiritual difficulties with this. And that friend of hers told me. So I decided that on a particular day I would knock on the doors in her neighborhood. And I just happened to be knocking on all the doors in the neighborhood, inviting them to our worship services, inviting them to our Bible study, giving literature. And then I came to Cheryl's door. And she came to the door. She was home. Almost nobody else was home, but she was home. And I told her who I was and why I was there, inviting her to come worship Christ with us. And she said, come inside. Come inside. Now, it was not the wisest thing for me to go into her home without someone else with me. But I did. And we sat there on her couch. And we talked about who Jesus is. I don't know if I brought up the fact or, or, or asked her, what about 1975? I hope I wasn't that crass. But we talked about who is Jesus. And I mentioned to her I'd been involved in... in Awake studies and Watchtower studies. And I had been convinced at one point that what Jehovah's Witnesses teach was the truth. But then there's all these other scriptures that they never showed me in the Bible. Cheryl started attending our little church gathering. She started attending our worship services, brought her sons. Her husband said it was okay. I think that their marriage was just about done anyway because of her convictions. and She was converted. The word of God converted her. The Holy Spirit used the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to convert her. God had been working in Cheryl's heart. All those months, maybe years, before I knew anything about her. God's working even when we can't see it. Don't be discouraged about those that you love, that you're praying for. Don't be discouraged that those whom you're praying for haven't come to Christ yet. And especially, don't become distraught if those that you love and you're attempting to witness to and you're attempting to explain the gospel to them and you're praying for them and they just become more and more antagonistic. We don't know what God's doing in their hearts. It can be as sudden as Saul of Tarsus conversion. And then he brings them to himself opens their eyes. He opens their heart. He gives them faith to believe. And then quote out of the blue they come to faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. And what do we say? Well it's about time. No. What do we say? Praise you Lord. Thank you Lord for your great mercies. Pray with me please. Father, thank you for showing us again tonight out of your word how you are working when we can't even see it. You're doing things that we know nothing about. You're drawing people to yourself that we don't even know. You could be working in people right now in in this county or in other counties around us that you're going to put us across their path And we're going to be talking to them about what we've learned or about your word or about our worship. And because you have been working in them for months, they're going to come and listen and some will be converted. You may be doing that. We don't know. But I pray that what you would do is use us to trust you to serve you, to look to you, and to not give up on those we love until the day that you bring them into the kingdom by your great sovereign power and grace. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him, above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. And we are dismissed.